Hey, Obsassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am discussing 706, Where the Waters Meet. But before I get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all kinds of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander season seven and eight, as well as Blood of My Blood, Men in Kilts, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season seven, episode six, Where the Waters Meet. I really love about doing these podcasts is that whenever I rewatch an episode, generally it's the first time I've seen that episode in a long time and I'm watching it with a critical eye. So there's all kinds of things that I notice or pick up on in an episode that I'm not necessarily either looking for or caring to notice in the first couple of watches, particularly with these episodes in season seven. This is the first time that I'm watching these episodes since the season aired. So for me, in a lot of these episodes, it's only the third or fourth time that I've watched them. And so I'm still picking up new things as a viewer on top of watching them with a critical eye. So I'm really kind of enjoying seeing all of these little nuances. And I honestly really appreciated some of the adaptive choices that were made for this episode. It was on the top half of episodes for this season, I think, in my opinion. I know that a lot of people didn't care for it, but I thought that it was very well done. So the title for this episode is Where the Waters Meet. And I found out when listening to the official podcast that the original title for this episode was Ticonderoga, which just does not have the outlandery title ring to it. You know, there's so many of these iconic titles like Dragonfly and Amber, The Ballad of Roger Mack, Freedom and Whiskey, you know, all of these really cool titles. And Ticonderoga just doesn't have that's like season one vibes when they're like rent but this one I really really like um and for those of you that don't know because you're not super outlander freaks like the rest of us Ticonderoga actually translates to where the waters meet or close to it from the native language They played us a little bit on these titles. I am not going to lie because, you know, when all of us saw Where the Waters Meet, we assumed that it was going to be the story of Jamie and Claire at Ticonderoga and all the stuff that ensues there. And this was the episode that was going to end with the Ticonderoga evacuation. And yeah, that's not what happened. So, okay, I'll give them credit where credit is due on keeping us on our toes. And finally, the last thing that I wanted to mention before we really get into all the things that I loved about this episode, because there were a lot of things that I loved. There was one massive boo-boo in this ep that I just cannot get over. And it feels like a mistake because it was such a massive, oh my God, what are we doing moment. And it was an issue with the coloring continuity. 
I guess what happened was that they were filming this scene where Claire goes missing, Jamie and Ian are hunting redcoats, and then they come back and find that she's missing and go looking for her, right? They're filming that all at once, and they started it in like late afternoon, and then they went right up until dusk. And I guess this scene that was filmed with Jamie and Ian coming upon Mrs. Raven's dead body was filmed earlier in the afternoon versus everything else that had like this dusky blue tones to it. And it was very clearly the middle of the flipping day in this scene. Like it does not even look like the scenes should be next to each other at all. Like it's not even close enough for me to buy it. And most of the time I just let things slide, but oof, yeah, that's not, mm. (laughs) And Matt Roberts even mentioned it in the podcast, so I know that it bugs the living hell out of him as well. But also, why did we not refilm it? Or why was there not some sort of color timing slash filter put on it to at least try to enhance the blue qualities in the image so that it kind of at least looked like it went together. It just looked like the evening scenes had this blue filter that brought out all the rich, really dark evergreen colors versus this, which looked like it was shot in the middle of the day without a filter. So yeah, that was a big one for me. And you don't often find big continuity errors like that with Outlander. So I guess maybe my standards are high, but yeah, that one bugged me. Anyway, moving on, we're going to start out today's analysis with talking about Roger Mack because he had a good story and we barely saw Bree, but I feel like last week was Bree's episode, so it was high time we get some Roger. I felt like it was so good to see him as a dad, but also figuring his path in life out. First, we'll talk about The Hitchhiker's Guide to Time Travel, which ends up being known as a practical guide for time travel, in the books at least. I don't know if they're going to change it or care to change it in the show. It does not appear that way. But in the books, it's known as A Practical Guide for Time Travelers, which is the title for next week's episode. So note that. But this guide that Roger is putting together is kind of how he's been filling his time and motivating himself to feel like he's being useful and not just sitting around doing nothing. They've basically, between him and Bree, they've come up with some theories on how they think this time travel thing works. And Bree is telling Roger about this veil that she encountered down in the tunnels below the dam which that's how I'm going to refer to it because I don't know how else to interpret it, but it just looks like this really filmy veil. And so she's trying to explain it to him. She says it kind of looks like heat shimmering off asphalt or kind of like water. She's not able to put her finger on it, but I think Roger's getting enough of a vibe to find out what it is. And then he just gets to thinking and he pulls out this map That's like total mind hunters shit, right? Like strings and and (laughs) cork boards and all that jazz where he's literally drawn lines between all of these known locations for standing stones. He's found that they all converge on Cregna Dune, which is where the little star is on the map. Now, This is highly simplified compared to Diana Gabaldon's whole theory that obviously unfolds over the course of all nine books going on ten. This is a simplified version, like I said, but I feel like they're doing a relatively good job of explaining it in that all of these lines are what are called ley lines. 
And this is like an actual scientific theory that people have. Between points of geographical, historical, spiritual significance, there are individual lines that connect these things. So Diana has taken that a step further and said that where these points converge, it basically creates a wormhole type effect where for people with certain genetic traits on certain days when the veil is thinner, you can basically fall through time or time travel. So that's the working theory here, right? And Roger has all of this in this journal that he's writing and it accidentally gets put in his bag. So you can imagine something's going to happen with that. And you know, I missed it the first watch. I was totally not paying attention to what Brie was doing, but the camera literally shows you it happening. Roger was a little bit bitter about Brie going out and getting a job and being the breadwinner and stuff, primarily because before he followed her back to the 18th century, he was a professor at Oxford. He had his life figured out. He had a good career in front of him. And now that he's been gone for so long, that career path is no longer open to him. So he's been trying to figure out what to do with his life. He thought he knew what he wanted to do when he decided to be a minister back in the 18th century. And then that's not really something that translated over to the 20th century because of all these things that have happened to them about changing history. He doesn't really know where that leaves him in his faith because of all the predestination business that we talked about a couple episodes ago. So Roger's kind of been adrift, as he puts it, to Menzies. He's finally coming back to himself a little bit, and Menzies offering him this job to teach this Gaelic class and throw a little bit of history and Scottish culture into the mix. That's right up Roger's alley, and it really anchors him and gives him something to do and to look forward to. It's something that he's passionate about, and Menzies knows that he's the right guy for the job. So I think... It really works out for him. Roger's really feeling good about himself. He's able to do a little bit of singing. He's able to be a historian again for the first time in a long time. It's really good to see Roger starting to find his own path again. That all comes about because we also see an endearing trait for me, something that I absolutely loved, which was Roger just being a dad. We saw that a little bit last week with him and Jim when Jim got in trouble and was then afraid to tell Roger that he got in trouble. This is the continuation of that story when Roger goes to Jem's school to talk to the principal. And this scene between Roger and Principal Menzies is absolutely hilarious, in my opinion. I think Rick did such a fantastic job acting this out. It's the perfect mix of a parent trying not to laugh at their child's exploits, but also being completely mortified at the same time. Because, you know, Roger goes in guns blazing. He's like, that woman almost tore my son's ear off and that's not okay. All for just speaking Gaelic. You know, he was ready to fight the good fight. And then Menzies is like, did Jim tell you what he said? <laughs> and Roger just kind of looks at Menzies and says, not exactly, no. <laughs> principal says he called Miss Glendenning a haggard old goat breath daughter of a witch. <laughs> and Roger just kind of raises his eyebrows and is like, well, that's not something I ever would have taught him. <laughs> and it's like, thank you, Jamie Fraser, because that is exactly where Jim got that. This leads into a very educational topic for the topic of 
Roger's class. But this conversation between Roger and Menzies also brings up a problem that really existed in the 80s in Scotland and to some extent still exists, but people are really starting to embrace the Gaelic language again and the origins of their Scottish roots in Scotland. So it's becoming less prominent, but there was a time pretty much from after Culloden, I would say well through the Victorian era and on towards modern day, that it became frowned upon to speak Gaelic because Gaelic was really thought to be a barbarous tongue, like just very uncivilized. And so especially in the 20th century, we're talking like 30s, 40s, 50s and on, that was a time when what few families were left in the Highlands, because remember, in the late 18th century and early 19th century, we went through the Highland clearances, which were basically where landowners of large estates kicked off their tenants because sheep were easier to raise on their lands than tenants and much less expensive. A lot of people immigrated to the Americas, to Australia, to all kinds of different countries and left Scotland. That took a huge percentage of the population out of the equation. And what few people did stay in the Highlands as the 20th century progressed began to migrate towards the cities. They felt like it was doing their children a disservice to learn such a barbarous tongue as Gaelic. And they wanted, as Menzi says, for their children to speak good English and go to the city and get good jobs. That really rubs Roger the wrong way. He's like, but this is our heritage. This is where we come from. That's not okay. Like they need to appreciate that our ancestors fought for the right to speak Gaelic. That goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Because that's Miss Glendening's issue. That's why she doesn't want Jim speaking Gaelic, because she feels like it's not a sophisticated language. It's not going to help him get a good job and be an upstanding member of society, apparently. Roger's whole goal with this Gaelic class is to educate on the history and the culture of Scotland and hopefully bring some interest back to the Gaelic language and its origins. And one thing that Roger is very good about is keeping people's attention, whether that means him teaching a Gaelic class and using Scottish curse words as an enticement for young kids, or whether it's preaching a sermon about loving thy neighbor, you know? He's very good at relating to people, and I think his intelligence and his passion really draw people in, and they listen to him. And that's something that I feel like they have been very good at working on with his character. That's not something that was abundantly clear in earlier seasons. So I'm really glad that we're starting to see that quality come out in him. Gillibridge McMillan, who you might recognize that name because he played Gwilin the Bard in the first season of Outlander, he came on as the Gallic consultant for season seven, and he helped them put together this line and verse song, the line singing song that Rick sings. Rick was actually very excited to do this, according to Matt Roberts, because it really did dig into the Scottish culture. And he says that he's found that with a lot of the Scottish people that work on set, like they're much more invested in elements of the show that really dig into their culture and allow them to explore that. So when the Gallic class is over, here comes Rob Cameron. 
you know, Roger is all like ready to open a can of whoop ass on this guy. Like he puffs himself up. He goes all protective husband on Rob and says, I, I know who you are. You work with my wife. And Rob goes, yeah, best inspector we've had in a long time. Doesn't take shite from anyone. Roger just really doesn't know what to think about that. He was like, uh, no, she doesn't. <laughs> and he's like, okay, well, things must be going okay with, with Bree and Rob. Then we find out that Rob has found Roger's journal. And Roger gets this, oh, shit, look on his face because this is a problem. I mean, they've gone through such lengths to keep time travel a secret from people because of the potential ramifications of people learning that this exists. And Roger accidentally got his journal somehow in the hymnals that he just gave out for everybody to look at. Like, oh, crap. But Rob passes it off as like, oh, you're writing a sci-fi novel. Well, maybe you'll let me read it when it's done, you know? And Roger thinks, okay, maybe he doesn't really know what it is and maybe it'll be fine. So he's still worried about it, but it is what it is because Rob doesn't seem to have bought into it at all. So as long as he doesn't think that it's real, no big deal. But this guy, I swear to you, like, and this is something I'll probably talk about next week as well, because this guy just does not have any idea about how social cues work. And like, since when is it polite to just invite yourself over to somebody's house for dinner? And I can tell that like Roger just doesn't want to be rude because this guy works with his wife and their relationship was off to a rocky start anyway. So he doesn't want to make things worse for Brie. But at the same time, he's like, oh my God, dude, no. No, you can't come over for dinner. <laughs> so yes, it's a very interesting situation with Rob Cameron. He's kind of likable, right? And that's the weird part because you know how much of an ass he can be. But at the same time, he's kind of a charmer. So he's somebody to keep your eye on for sure. And so the 20th century story ends on a very interesting note with the revealing of the Nuklavi's identity. So Mandy's been seeing this man outside the window. Roger has found trash that is not Jimmy's outside the ducat. So they have a feeling that somebody is lurking, somebody's around that's not supposed to be around. Then Roger finally catches this guy lurking, like looking in the windows. And who is it? It's Buck McKenzie. This was a recast. I'm very glad that they made this decision to recast this role because as cool as it was to see Graham McTavish again in season five, it just was not conducive to what needed to happen this season with Buck's character. I think they did a great job with matching the hair and the clothes and generally speaking, the look of Graham McTavish so that it wasn't completely jarring seeing this person take on a role that we've seen relatively recently within the show. I mean, a couple of seasons. So yes, for those of you that are confused, Buck McKenzie is the man that got Roger hung at Alamance. It's his, what, four or five times great-grandfather, I think, is how that all ended up shaking out. But yeah, kind of crazy that this is a time traveler. And he's actually the first time traveler we get that we know of that has come forward in time. Because up until this point, every time traveler we've encountered has gone back around 200-ish years. And Buck has come forward around 200-ish years. So 
Moving on, we're going to talk about my favorite man of the episode, the man of the hour, William. He had a good story this week. And you know, last week with 705, he kind of left the plot about halfway through the episode and then we didn't see him until this week. He's kind of been all over the place. He went up to Fort Crown Point and then back down to Fort Ticonderoga. And he's kind of between commanding officers at this point. He met up with Burgoyne and then Burgoyne sent him down to Fraser. And Fraser's letting him report back to Richardson, who will be arriving shortly. We finally meet the infamous Brigadier General Simon Fraser, who is Jamie's second cousin. It's very interesting to see how these two interact Fraser ends up becoming somewhat of a paternal figure in William's life, not so much in the show, but definitely in the books. One thing that we pick up from this conversation, this initial conversation that William and Simon have, is that William does possess a sound military mind, and Fraser notes that. He's like, but I'd expect no less from the son of Lord John Gray. And you could see William kind of puff up at that. He's very proud that, A, he's getting a compliment from his commanding officer, but also because he's the son of Lord John and people recognize that. Lord John is very well known and very highly regarded, so... It's nothing to roll your eyes at whenever you're kind of like, oh, you're Lord John's son. 95% of the time, that's a good thing, (laughs) I would say. But yeah, it's one of those things where when Simon Fraser tells William that, oh, well, if you're hungry for a fight, then you won't have to wait long because as soon as we garrison this fort, we're moving south to meet up with General Hausman. William goes, but General Hausman, New York. And then doesn't miss a beat whenever he says, you're going to cut off the Northern Army. And so this is the point in history when the new campaign is starting up and the idea behind this year's campaign is that the British are trying to split the colonies into the Northern and Southern colonies because they think that if they can contain the North and take the South, then they are in pretty good shape and have a decent chance of winning this war. So that plays out over the course of Saratoga and all of that, which we'll deal with over the course of the next couple of episodes. But this is where it all kicks off. Ticonderoga and the aftermath of Ticonderoga are the slow burn to this explosive battle we get at Saratoga. William also re-encounters Captain Richardson which I'm still not sure about this guy. Okay, so obviously I've read the books and I'm trying not to say too much because we don't have answers in the show about this guy. Also, from some of the things that I've heard, they may have changed his role in the show a little bit. So again, I'm not sure if what I know is actually what I know for the show. I could see how they could be laying the groundwork for where it goes in the book. So let's put it that way. You're just never really sure what side he's on, which that's the kind of character he's meant to be. He's meant to be a murky character. Obviously, William is back and forth on it himself. He's found out that these men that he was supposed to deliver these messages for are actually rebels. You're left with wondering, okay, is Richardson a double agent? Are these men double agents? Does he know that they're rebels? So you've got all of these questions. William has all of these questions. Richardson finally looks at him and says, how are wars won, Lieutenant? He says, well, with victory on the battlefield. <laughs> and he's like, well, undoubtedly. 
But then he goes on to point out a very valid thing that the use of intelligence gathered by spies is the only way that the generals and the brigadier generals, all your commanders in a force can make an educated decision through espionage, through information given and received. Richardson leads William to believe that these men are really spies, allies for the British cause. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but that's how William looks at things. And when he finds out that he fucked up, he's tripping over himself to apologize because he realizes that if that's really the case, like he could have done some real damage by not delivering these messages. But you can't blame the guy because all he did was follow orders by not reading the messages, by not deciphering the code for himself. So I got the vibe with this conversation that if William had opened the messages and deciphered the code, he would have gotten trouble for that. If he hadn't and the messages just got lost, he would have gotten trouble for that. Like damned if you do and damned if you don't type situation. William did what he was told to do and... I don't really think we can fault him for that at this point in time. The rest of William's story kind of entangles itself with the Frasers. So we'll move on to Claire and talk about her story a little bit. And remember last week we talked about how each episode has a character that is the driving force for that episode. So now that I've heard that, I'm going to be thinking about that for every episode I watch. Okay, who's the driving force for this episode? And I really think that for this episode, it's Claire. This is Claire's story for all intents and purposes. I liked her story so much more this episode than last episode. Last week, like I said, was a been there, done that, bought the t-shirt type situation, and I was just ready to move on. This week, even though we're getting similar vibes of things that we've done before, it's a very different feel because her presence in the British camp is for a very different reason than it has been in the past. As a healthcare worker, as a doctor and a surgeon, Claire is used to loss. It's just part and parcel of the game that you play in the healthcare business. You lose people. There are sometimes, no matter how hard you try, people that you just can't help. And Claire encounters two of those patients this episode. The first is Mrs. Raven, who, through no fault of her own, I mean, she's suffering from a mental illness and she's not thinking clearly and not making the right decisions. And there's very little that Claire can do for her in the intervening time while they're evacuating Fort Ticonderoga. And Claire has tried to keep an eye on her, tried to do what's best for her, tried to be a good doctor. But at the end of the day, there just wasn't anything Claire could do. And I think that that eats at her. Anytime that she feels helpless, she does not like that feeling. I don't think anybody likes to feel helpless, but Claire has like a personal issue with not being in control and not being able to help people that need it. And I think it stings even more with Walter because she has a personal connection with Walter. He's a really sweet guy. I just love Walter's character. I love how he calls Jamie Big Red. (laughs) I think it's so cute. Claire and Walter have a really good rapport, and so it stings a little bit more when we lose Walter because he is such a good guy, and it kind of reminded me of how we felt when Elias Pound died in season three. Like, he wasn't a character that we had been invested in for a long time. It wasn't like, 
losing Rupert in 301, okay? But it was a character that was a really good person that had some endearing traits that you're just like sad to see them go, if that makes sense. So for me, Walter was that person. I mean, I felt like the actor that plays Walter was very good and made you connect with this character. I think that's the key. Like if you don't have an actor that can create a connection with the audience, then the audience isn't going to have an emotional response when they die. This is one of those adaptation parts of this episode that I was absolutely thrilled with because in the books, we don't ever get answers as to whether Walter died or Walter lived. I'm a person that I need closure and we got that this episode for sure because that was one of those things where like I'm starting to get pissed off at this point in the book because for undisclosed reasons... There are reasons that you might wonder whether Walter is dead or not in the future. Let's put it that way. It's hard to not know in the books. So Claire does feel a lot of guilt for losing her patience, for not being able to help any more than she can help. And I think that's just a natural response. She puts a lot on her shoulders all the time. She's very much like Jamie in that respect. And I think that's why they understand each other so well, because they're both natural leaders They're born to help people and to take responsibility for things. So when Ian comes for Claire and helps her escape at the end of this episode, while she understands that she had to do that for her own benefit, like she had to save herself, she still can't help but feel this immense sense of guilt because she left all those people, all those patients behind, women and children, sick people. And even though she had done everything she could to help them, it still doesn't ease that sense of loss for her or that sense of failure. So this need to do more, to be more that Claire has, it's a fault for sure, but it's also a strength at the same time. Like you have to appreciate her gumption if nothing else. But it's this quality in her that drives her to seek help, to be like, look, I'm going to put myself in charge of these patients. I'm going to be the leader of all these sick people and they need water, they need food, and they need medicinal herbs so that I can help them as much as I can. But I can't help them unless you work with me here. And of course, the soldier that she ends up barking up the tree of is William. And I absolutely adore this scene. I cannot tell you how many times I've watched this scene and for a multitude of reasons. First off is the acting on both Katrina's part and Charles's part. You really get an intense understanding of what both of these characters are feeling just through the facial expressions that they're exchanging with one another. William instantaneously recognizes Claire. And this is a woman that made a very big impression on a young boy. I mean, he was 11, 12, 13-ish whenever they met each other on Fraser's Ridge, but she saved his father's life. And that was a very scary time for him. He just lost his mother. He thought he was going to lose his father, and she basically came in and saved the day. This is the first time that he's seen a woman in a strong, take-charge role, and it worked. She was able to save his father's life. And so that made an impression on William in the biggest way. When this woman marches up to him in camp and is just like, sir, I must ask that you at least provide the basics of life for your prisoners. And he just looks at her and is like, oh, my God. And you can see that look on his face. He's just like, I'm sorry, but 
I think I know you. <laughs> and she's like, what? He says, I'm Lieutenant Lord Ellesmere, William Ransom. And the look on Claire's face, Katrina does such a phenomenal job. You just instantly see everything in her face soften. Like she was genuinely upset, Claire was, when she walked up. She was mad. She was ready for a fight if she had to. And then she encounters William and she's feeling all kinds of emotions because this is a grown man standing in front of her versus the boy that she met all those years ago. But also, this is Jamie's son. She doesn't have her husband now, and I'm sure that's weighing on her, even though she knows that Jamie will come for her eventually. But seeing William, and this is especially true in the books because William looks so much like Jamie. Not to say that Charles does not look like Sam because I think they did a fantastic job with the casting, but there's just no feasible way to get a Sam mini-me that has the talent that you need to have to play William Ransom. So Charles was an excellent choice. William is a huge sense of comfort to Claire in the books, especially because he looks so much like Jamie, but she can still see Jamie in William, even in the show when they don't look pretty much like identical twins. This softened look of awe on Claire's face is very important to note. William's sense of sympathy towards Claire when she says, you know, I'm trying my best to take care of these people, but if we don't get food and water and medicine, I fear we're going to lose some of the sick. We we have a starving baby and it's not going to make it. William has a very kind and generous heart and he wants to help Claire so badly, but there's just nothing he can do. And that's what he said. He was like, I'll do what I can. I will ask. I'll make inquiries, but our supplies are still two days behind us. Even we don't have food right now. So that's a hard pill to swallow for Claire. But I think that she trusts William to do what he can. A, because she knows who his father that raised him is, which is Lord John. And that is very much a Lord John trait is, I will do my best. Look at what Lord John did with Jamie and the prisoners at Ardsmere. He was able to get blankets and medicine for some of the ill prisoners, which is something that most of the time a warden would not do at all. And Lord John kind of was able to cross that line. And very similarly here, William is able to do that for Claire and the prisoners. I've seen the question raised a couple of times about why does William not have a stronger reaction to Claire being a rebel? And the answer is quite simple, actually, in the fact that we're in the 18th century. A lot of times in the 18th century, women followed their husbands wherever they went. That's where we got the concept of camp followers. And so William is probably assuming that Claire didn't really have a choice in the matter, and she's just following the whim of her husband. So he's not going to hold that against her. He's going to help her. He knows her. He knows that she's a good person. He's not going to ask her her political inclinations or anything like that. He's made an educated assumption based on the cultural norms of the day. He's shocked. He doesn't want to think about the fact that one of his father's good friends is a rebel and that his wife is now being held prisoner, but it's a reality, right? And so we're taking next steps. Another thing that I absolutely adored about this scene, and probably one of the things that I find most fascinating, is where I get on my Bear McCreary train and just sing his praises for 25 minutes. I'm not going to. I'm going to try really hard not to. But if you pay attention to the music in this scene, 
One thing that this season has done a really good job of is finding different ways of incorporating the William theme into the music. Before this season, it had always been that really clear, high clarinet tone, and it was the same. No matter what episode you were watching, it was always in the same key. It was always the same instrumentation. And as he becomes more of a developed character with more personality and you start to see him grow a little bit, the instrumentation changes depending on who's talking about William, who's talking to him, what he's doing, but it's always there in the background. And that's just an addition to this season. There's always the new music choices that Bear makes. But one thing that I loved about this scene in particular is that when Claire first realizes that it's William that she's talking to, you get the initial William theme song. I call it the OG Willie theme. And it's that clarinet that I was mentioning. It's the theme that you get when Jamie first lays eyes on him in Of Lost Things. It's the same theme that you hear when Willie looks back over his shoulder at Jamie in Blood of My Blood in season four. That theme is forever cemented in our minds as being associated with young William, child William. And that's who William was the last time Claire laid eyes on him, the last time Claire interacted with him in any way. So when she realizes that this man in front of her is that William, that's the theme that plays as that look of realization comes over her face. But as she's talking to William and starting to realize that he's a grown man and like he's matured and he's making his own decisions and he's a leader of men like his father, we get a more rich, bold, deeper version of that theme song as the scene progresses. It's literally like you're hearing Claire's perception of William change as she realizes that the boy that she knew is now the man that's standing in front of her. And so I really, really, really adored that choice. I think it's one of my favorite musical moments of the entire season so far. Another character that Claire encounters this episode is Sandy Hammond. He is one of William's friends and I absolutely adore him. But much like Walter Woodcock, I just had a really, really, really bad feeling when I met this young man because I would say probably three quarters of the time in television or movies, particularly television where you have a consistent cast over a long period of time, if you get a new character that you just instantly love, but you can't really see their importance in the plot, I would say, like I said, three out of four times that person ends up dying. So I just had a terrible feeling about meeting Sandy Hammond. <laughs> I love him. He has one of the most iconic lines of the entire series, in my opinion, when Claire says, how did you know who I was? And he looks at Claire and said, he said you'd be the curly wig shouting orders like a sergeant major. <laughs> He's William's best friend. And William couldn't give Claire all the herbs and medical supplies and stuff that he went and gathered, but Sandy could. So he brought them for her. He's just a likable guy. You can tell that he really has a kind soul, much like William does. And that's when you realize, honestly, that a lot of these soldiers are so young, like late teens, early to mid 20s. 
And it's just so sad that like such a huge percentage of these guys were killed. It's really sad. But I feel like the other big talking point for Claire when we're talking about William is the escape scene because this is a big moment for William. It showcases a couple things about his personality. Matt Roberts said over the course of filming for season seven, he made a point to have a couple of different discussions with Charles about how he portrayed William's character because he wanted it to be a thing, Matt did, where you can see Jamie coming out in William in very subtle ways. He said he didn't want it to be in your face, but he wanted it to be there. And I feel like that's something that you absolutely see in this scene, this confrontation between William, Claire, and Ian. You see William's fire underneath all of that. Like whenever he walks up to Ian and stands over him and says, you're no scout, you're a damned liar. He gets that clench to his jaw, that fire underneath that anger and passion but he's also you see that kindness in his eyes that you so often see associated with Jamie in the earlier scene with Claire where she's asking for medical supplies to treat her patients whatever pointers Matt gave or whatever conversations he had with Charles I feel like it paid off in spades he does a really good job of kind of hinting at both the nature and nurture aspects of William's character I think that you can see Lord John's influence, but you can also see Jamie's genetic influence as well in him. So when we're talking about the great escape, yeah, we see character shift and like different aspects of William, but also that's a huge moment for him. We see how quick-witted he is. He tells Ian thank you, recognizes that he owes him a debt and what have you. He starts to walk off and then he turns around and says, did you not tell me that when first we met, it was at a place called Fraser's Ridge that was owned by your uncle? And Ian's like, yes. And he says, well, is it not a coincidence that we have a woman as a prisoner here who also claims to be the wife of a James Fraser at Fraser's Ridge? Like literally, this is something he puts together within a couple of minutes. It's not something he had to think about. So he's very intelligent and puts things together on the fly, like lickety split. When Ian goes to kind of deny or like cajole William, Claire steps in and goes, yeah, I'm his aunt. Because not only does William owe Claire, but now William owes Ian. He's torn between making the honorable choice according to his duty to the army or making the honorable choice according to all these good things that these people have done for him, repaying a moral debt. I think I mentioned it a couple episodes ago, but there's a scene in the books where John is talking to William because William is wanting John to sign off on his commission papers because William hasn't reached his majority yet. And John has a very down-to-earth chat about you're going to encounter situations where you have to decide what the right decision is. Is it doing what your superiors tell you to do or doing what your heart tells you to do? And you're going to have to live with that decision. This is that moment for him. And so I'm so sad that we did not have that scene between John and William because I feel like that was a good through line for William. Like that really is something that he uses as the basis of his moral compass in the book a lot of times. And I can see that as a book reader 
in the show. So I think it would have been good to see John as a father. And I'm really hoping that we get quite a few scenes with John as a father in the second part of season seven. In the end, for William, he decides that, you know, these are good people and the right thing to do here is to let them go because they've saved my ass more than once and I owe them. He's an honorable man. He is willing to do the right thing. It just takes him a little bit to get there. And, you know, Ian gets impatient with him. He was like, Christ, man, turn your back and we'll trouble you no more. And Yes, William like wants to just let them go, but at the same time, he's torn between what's right and wrong. And so that's why I think that it was such a huge moment for him whenever he made the conscious decision to help Ian and Claire escape. It wasn't that he just turned his back and let them disappear. Like he gave them the information they needed to get out of the fort without being seen. And that took it an extra step further. That really cleared the deck of any sort of debt that might be remaining. And that's where William says what I consider the quote of the episode, which is, a life for a life, Mr. Murray. We're quits. Don't let me see you again. I may not have a choice. It's not that William wouldn't be willing to help Ian in the future, but it's the fact that somebody might be watching in the future. And I can't sacrifice my own well-being for your stupid decisions, basically. So don't let me see you again. I think that that was a momentous occasion for not only William, but for the cousins. Because at this point, Ian recognizes that William is his cousin. William is still in the dark. That's one thing that I really love about William and Ian is they have this tenuous relationship, but it's a relationship nonetheless. And seeing the evolution of that is really something that I'm excited to see unfold on screen because it's one of my favorite parts of the books. So we pick up with Jamie again as Claire and Ian escape the fort. When Jamie and Claire arrive back at the camp um, near Hubberton with everybody else that escaped Fort Ticonderoga, Jamie's term of enlistment is almost up. As an audience, we know that the revolution is ticking and ticking and ticking. All of these small conflicts are leading to a much, much bigger thing that's going on. And that thing ends up being the Battle of Saratoga. And so I think when they arrive at Hubberton, Jamie's kind of on the fence. Like, yes, they want to go to Scotland. That was the goal all along. But when Daniel Morgan catches sight of Jamie walking through camp with a turkey slung over his shoulder that he shot through the eye, ain't no way in hell Daniel Morgan is letting Jamie walk out of that camp. (laughs) I don't know what Morgan had to offer Jamie, but... Jamie wasn't going to turn it down. Obviously, Claire is not surprised. I don't think anybody was surprised when Jamie comes back to Claire and said, I accepted the offer because Jamie has the same problem that Claire has in that she can't just quit. She can't just turn tail and run because it's the easier thing to do. He feels obligated to be there to see it through. And nobody thought that he was actually going to just walk away after his enlistment was over, especially Claire, okay? But she does make the point that if you were going to stay and fight, I would much rather you be a sniper than be an infantryman within range of cannons and musket fire and all of that. Like, you're much safer as a rifleman with Morgan. If you wanted to look for a silver lining in Jamie's reenlistment, that was probably it. I think Jamie feels a connection with Daniel Morgan, which we'll kind of explore more here in the next couple of episodes. 
This final scene with Jamie and Claire leads us to a very interesting conversation that these two have. And you know, some of my favorite Jamie and Claire conversations are these existential conversations that they have about like the meaning of the universe and just these big open-ended questions and airing their thoughts on it. And so when Claire says, why is it, do you think, that women don't make wars? That is a very interesting thought. And you know, like part of me thinks that it's because women have never been in enough of a position of power that they had the opportunity to make war. I mean, you look at Cleopatra, she certainly made war, but she's one of the few women in history that had that power to be able to make that call. But nonetheless, this conversation leads down the pike of women have the ability to create life. So having that ability probably makes it more difficult to end life. And that made sense to me. Think about it. Like if you have the ability to carry a child within you and raise that child, why would you willingly want to cause the death of other women's children? That was certainly a very thought-provoking question for me, one that I definitely thought about for a little bit. But Jamie actually brings up a good character-driven point as well when he says that he's not as afraid of dying as he used to be. He said, it's not that I would enjoy it, but he's lived a fulfilling life. He's got children and grandchildren that are thriving. He's more afraid at this point or relishes it less to kill young men who haven't yet lived their lives. I think that says a lot about his character. Um, Maybe that's just something that as you get older, you start to look at life a little bit differently. But that really shows where Jamie's at, I think, right now at this point in his life that he appreciates everything that he's been given. But at the same time, he really dreads the idea of taking the life of a young man who hasn't yet really lived. And I think more so than anything, he's really thinking about William and how much of a tragedy that would be for William to lose his life because he's so young and he's got so much potential in him. He's putting his life on the line by being in the British Army like thousands of other young men. Yeah, I think that weighs heavily on Jamie for sure. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this conversation about being hesitant to take the lives of young men coincides with Jamie rolling over to Claire and taking her hand and saying, tell me about my son. My brother said that was one of the few times this season where he actually teared up and almost cried. He said that that really was touching for him and it was touching for me, but like my brother has a little boy. So for him, that wrung all kinds of heartstrings for him. When Claire tells Jamie after they first reunite, Claire has this flask of brandy. And it's one of my favorite scenes from Echo. And Jamie says, is that brandy? Where'd you get it? And she said, your son gave it to me. And this look that passes over Sam's face has so many emotions written in it. It's got sorrow. It's got wonder. It's got excitement. Jamie has heard about William from John and from Ian probably at this point, but knowing that Claire encountered William, Jamie and Claire have a connection that Jamie doesn't have with other people. Like Jamie knows that Claire will be able to tell him the things that he really wants to know. Things about William's character and his attributes, not his accomplishments that he's made 
or the things that he said, like he wants to know about the heart. He wants to know about who his son is deep in his soul. And I think that he knows that Claire can tell him that information. And that's exactly what he gets in this final scene. Whenever he says, tell me about my son, Claire says, he's handsome, he's thoughtful and observant, and he's stubborn, clearly a man of honor. When he looked at me, I saw the same kindness in his eyes. But there's also a fire there, the fierceness of a Highlander under all those courtly manners. And I love that she says all of this while she's touching Jamie. Whenever she talks about the kindness in William's eyes, she's looking in his eyes and like tracing the crow's feet at the corners of his eyes. She's touching his like sharp cheekbones and his jaw when she's talking about the fierceness and the fire in him. It's a very intimate scene and it's so sweet. This is another one of those moments where I'm like, you cannot tell me that Sam and Katrina do not still have the same chemistry they had on day one because this scene just makes you feel all the feels. And if they didn't have that chemistry, you would not have half the emotion in this scene that you do. This scene was so perfect. I thought it was fantastic on an emotional note to end this episode because we're about to go on a flipping roller coaster ride through the universe over the next two episodes between all the crap that's happening in the 20th century and the 18th century between everybody's timelines. It's a lot. So I felt like this scene gave us a moment to breathe. It was a really long scene. I don't know how many pages it was, but... Never for a minute did I think about how long that scene was. Like, oh my God, this is going on for a long time. Like, no, it just felt so natural, so warm and inviting. It was like a big hug, you know, because I feel like, especially as the storylines get more complex and as we add more characters to the story, we kind of lose touch with Jamie and Claire at times. And when we come back to them and have these really beautiful emotional scenes between them. It just centers you, like it grounds you back in the Outlander universe. Matt calls it tributaries leading back to the main river, whatever you want to call it, but it makes me feel good seeing these Jamie and Claire scenes, and I thought this was a wonderful way to sort of in the episode. Alrighty, well that about wraps up my analysis. Quote of the episode is the argument between William and Ian where William says... A life for a life, Mr. Murray. We're quits. Don't let me see you again. I may not have a choice. Because like I said, that just really sets off a fire in me. I just want to keep seeing William and Ian together. Um, so much so. So I can't wait for the second half of season seven. And then the honorable mention for quote of the episode was Sandy's quote. He said you'd be the curly wig shouting orders like a sergeant major. <laughs> Because it's so perfect, and that is a straight-from-the-books Diana Gabaldon line, and it's perfect. I loved it in the books, and I loved it in the show just as much. And then performance of the episode goes to Katrina Balfe, because she just really nailed it. There were so many emotions that her character went through this episode, whether it was the guilt she felt over the patients that she lost or couldn't help, whether it was the shock, awe, and joy of meeting William again. It was just all so good. So yeah, Katrina for sure got performance of the episode. Alrighty, guys. Well, as always, I love to open up the floor for you guys to tell me what you thought about this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Joan Cohen says, 
This wasn't a top episode for me. It felt like the evacuation from Ticonderoga and hiding in the woods lacked the sense of chaos and fear it should have had. The lighting in the woods drove me crazy. Was it day or night? The continuity was a mess. I was surprised that Jamie left Claire and the others unprotected. Naturally, Claire doesn't stay put. Oh, hell. I'm not sure how I feel about the casting of Simon Fraser. His accent sounded odd and he didn't have as much of a commanding presence as I would have thought. I liked the first meeting between William and Claire. He's very much the gentleman. I loved how she stares in disbelief, trying to absorb every detail of him. I did miss Ian and William having a tug of war over Claire. That would have been a fun moment. I'm happy we got the curly wig comment, though. I liked the way Richardson is being played. There's some subtle hints that his intent towards William isn't exactly benign, while he seems to take him under his wing. There's a bit of a parallel with the way Rob Cameron manipulates Roger into inviting him for dinner. While seeming to be enthusiastic about learning Gaelic and having a home-cooked meal, they both appear to have good intent on the surface, but there's something off-putting in both of their behaviors. Time will tell. My outstanding moment is Jamie's reaction when Claire mentions she got the brandy from his son. As always, Sam conveys an amazing amount of emotion that rapidly plays over his face, so we instantly understand how he feels. I liked the adult version of William's theme playing underneath that moment, too. Yeah, I mean, I love the adult version of William's theme song anytime it plays, if I'm being honest, Joan. If you guys haven't picked that up by the amount of times I've talked about it this season so far, that is a good pickup on the parallel between Rob Cameron and Captain Richardson being so shady, both of them, and in the same episode. That See, that's something that I didn't even pick up on yet. So thank you for that. Obviously, I can see where you're getting it because it's 100% true. I just can't believe I didn't notice it before. I feel like Captain Richardson's being very well done so far. So I will be anxious to see how all of that plays out in the show, if they're going to keep it the same as the books. Like, I have so many questions. And our last comment of the day is from Casey Filson. She says, This is the second time I've watched this episode, and I really like it. Not a top favorite, but it does a great job of pulling storylines together. When Claire and William meet, wow, that was acted out very well. William has the utmost respect for Claire and is willing to get her what she needs if he can. Sandy is also a total sweetie. And I love the line about the curly wig. Claire ceases to amaze me with how she puts herself in charge, and if you don't comply, then there shall be consequences. I appreciate the adaptation with Walter Woodcock's storyline, and I'm glad we have a final conclusion for him. I hope we get it later in the book, too, but at the same time, I get that back then you didn't always know for sure if someone just didn't come home. Roger is finding more of himself and a place in the modern world. But oh man, that Rob Cameron, not only does he read something that he wasn't supposed to, but he just invites himself over and you can tell Roger isn't too thrilled about it. I'm also not a fan of pushy people, so I get it. It's a bit overwhelming and that ending, love it. Buck is lucky a punch in the face is all he got from Roger between the hanging and being a creep. Yeah, I mean, I'm not upset at all that Roger kind of let him have it because Lord knows he caused Roger enough pain and suffering. Rob just does not have any understanding of social cues whatsoever. Like Roger was clearly just giving the "Mm, I'd rather you not come over vibes and Rob just steamrolls right over him. It's comical, but also like "Mm, not okay, if you know what I mean. So um, yeah, I basically agree with everything you said, Casey. Well put. 
Alrighty, guys, that wraps up this episode on 706, Where the Waters Meet. Make sure to join me next week for my analysis of 707, a practical guide for time travelers. Till then, you guys stay safe out there, and I'll chat at you later. Bye.